Good morning and welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson and today we are joined by Catherine Dane. We'll be chatting about female field collision sports, specifically the physical, technical and tactical demands based on a recent scoping review. What are the demands for women? Do they differ from men? And what does it mean for practitioners designing training programs? Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Did you want to start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Brooke. Delighted to be here. Um, I'm a qualified physiotherapist and second year PhD candidate from Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. Um, in my spare time, I play rugby for my club, Old Belvedere, and I'm very lucky to be capped uh, 23 times for my country, which is which seems unbelievable because it's all gone in the flash. Um, so during my undergraduate degree at Trinity College, um, I, I fell in love with sports medicine. Uh, under the supervision of Dr. Fiona Wilson. Um, I just love the idea of making a positive difference in sport. And through research, I thought that I could make a difference in my own sport of rugby. So um, I've been on the receiving end of a number of injuries from tackling and, and witnessed a lot of those sort of injuries through my work as a physiotherapist. Um, and recently working with Leinster Rugby, I saw that as well. So. Um, through my playing experiences and my work as a physio, I uh, have kind of a first-hand understanding of the risks associated with tackle injuries. And, and I wanted to kind of see if I could make my mark in that area for the women's game. Um, so having a look at the existing tackle research, I noticed that women weren't really accounted for um, or represented in that research. So it was a clear it was clear that there was a host of unanswered questions, um, such as how do women tackle? How do we prepare them to tackle? And kind of are there any differences in the way that they experience injuries? So um, we were kind of working off the assumption that men and women tackle in the same way, but we know from existing research that the playing contexts and the tackle injury mechanisms are quite different. So it's important to count the women's experiences of, of tackle injuries too. So I'm ultimately using my PhD to um, help answer some of these questions, focusing on the, the safety and optimal tackle outcomes um, in women's rugby union. Amazing. Thanks, Catherine. I'm really looking forward to chatting and getting your uh, yeah perspective from the research. Um, you're kind of early in the first year of your PhD or about halfway through, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yep. yeah. And then your perspective from an athlete's point of view uh, as well. So just to kick off, what... Uh, what are physical, technical and tactical demands? So your review focused on looking at these in female field collision sports. Are you kind of yeah able to define what these four things are for the audience? Yeah, I suppose the, the physical demands are um, things like the exertion required to perform match and training functions. So in our review, we, we bracketed that into locomotor demands, such as running, accelerating, decelerating, things like that. And then collision demands, such as kind of tackle counts and, and GPS-derived collisions. The technical demands were things like catching, passing, kicking, scrummaging, tackling. Um, uh, the tactical demands were things like outcomes associated with team success or um, successful technical actions. And then our preparatory strategies were, were things like how, how have practitioners prepared female athletes to meet these technical and physical demands of competition. 
Excellent. Thank you. And yeah, the paper is a great resource um, for practitioners. Yeah, just even to look up what those, you know, physical demands are, how far do people run, how many accelerations. So we're going to delve into a little bit about the findings now, Catherine. So what were the main findings and were there differences where you could um, access the research between men and women? Yeah, so I suppose um, the bulk of the existing literature appears to be um, focused on those physical demands, especially the locomotor demands. Um, less is known about the technical demands and preparatory strategies in female sports, especially in areas such as the tackle contest that I'm interested in. Um, and there's even less so in, in your sport of AFL too, I'm sure you noticed. Um, but in relation to differences in game demands between men and women, we did notice some differences in, in the physical demands, um, obviously with, with locomotor demands being a little bit less than our male counterparts, but not by much. Um, and there were some differences in the execution and selection um, of technical skills, such as punt kicking and scrummaging and tackle completion. So uh, like, for example, there was considerable differences in um, scrummaging in terms of the postures demonstrated and the forces generated by female packs compared to male packs. Um, and in terms of tackle technique and skill acquisition, there was data to suggest there's differences in the way in which men and women learn um, to tackle and, and women tend to see bigger improvements using video feedback. So I suppose this information is, you know, you take what you want from it, but it has important considerations for tackle coaching. Um, especially for safety and performance in these populations. That's a great overview. So I'd really like to delve into kind of each of the areas. So if we start with the, the locomotion side of things, so you mentioned that um, apart from a couple of measures, I think it was max velocity, correct me if I'm wrong, the physical demands for men and women in the senior elite were quite similar. Were you surprised by this? finding and I guess what does it mean for strength and conditioning and high performance managers and coaches designing training programs because I think sometimes in the women's space we kind of maybe critique because we can't just cut and copy the men's program to the women's program but is the data suggesting that yeah the demand and what the athletes are outputting are similar? Yes certainly the the, the outputs are similar and and um, I, I wasn't I wasn't too surprised um I mean, there, there are definitely similarities um, and given the rules of play and the, and the playing times that are very similar, if not the exact same, um, I wasn't surprised by some of these demands, but um, in the way in which we get the athletes to that place of um, getting to that level of having the phys physical capacity, I think it has to be tailored to the, the athletes that you have in front of you. So. So yes, the evidence for preparing men is really well established and you can certainly apply some of these training principles um, used by men to women, but you also need to be aware of the contextual differences um, between the sports and, and the needs of those individuals. So um, I'm not talking about anatomy or hormones, I'm, I'm talking about things like uh, gender differences in training ages, um, and the organisation of women's sport and do they have access to gym facilities and technical coaches and strength and conditioning coaches because that definitely varies um and I know from um conducting interviews with, with players uh, that there are a wide variety of training ages with many uh, women playing rugby for the first time in their early 20s so 
we also need to be mindful of that when we come to preparing our, our female athletes. Thanks, Catherine. And, and what about from an athlete perspective? Uh, is there anything you've experienced that yeah, has really helped you from that like physical preparation point of view? Yeah, that's a good, good question. And I suppose I've um, been really fortunate that I've been exposed to um, some really high quality strength and conditioning coaches in, in my career. And, and um, especially at Ireland, like we've, we've really um, moved up a notch in terms of female specific coaching and, and um, we're now kind of monitoring our menstrual cycle and, and um, there's a lot of consideration for our on-field as well as off-field demands and, and load because even at the elite level um, we're amateur so we're still you know playing catch-up in terms of professionalism so um, our coaches have been really really good at factoring that into our preparation. I know myself um, I can't follow from from even working at Leinster I know um, the, the training programs that they follow, I wouldn't be able to do that with my workload as, as a physio and as a PhD student um, and an elite athlete. So um, they, you, you do have to take a slightly different approach to getting the very most out of your athletes. So um, yeah, I suppose it, it's very individualized for women and that's maybe where I got the biggest bang for buck in, in my physical preparation. So another part of the physical demands is things like collisions. So not surprisingly, you found in the review that they were the most frequent contact event. And we know that concussion is a big issue for both men and women in all football codes. And concussion often occurs from a consequence of some kind of collision, whether it be with a player or, or the ground. We also know that collision sports are still in their infancy for women and that they may not have the same technical skill or training age when it comes to, say, scrums and tackling. So knowing from what you found from the review and drawing on your own experience in sport and the research, do you think that we, yeah, I guess talk a little bit about what you found, but are we preparing women and girls for the demands of the game? Yeah, you're right. Um, the tackle is the most frequent match contact event. And, and in terms of tactical considerations and team injury burden, it, it is a really pivotal um, technical action that's that's pivotal to team success. So, um, yeah, although the the rules of the, game, of the game are the same and the technical actions um, between male and female players can be similar, the, the context in which we play are quite different. And women especially, um, typically engaged later in life in these collision sports and, and lack the traditional long-term exposure to, to playing contact sports. And even the way we're socialized from as children, we, we don't get a chance to wrestle or do any of that sort of stuff. So thinking back on my own first exposure to rugby, I was really quite advantaged to be able to play from a young age with the boys and get used to that, that kind of um, contact element. Whereas I think if I was just to start playing rugby now, I, I don't think I'd be half as brave as I was back then. Um, <laughs> I definitely talked myself out of it. Um, but I suppose these contextual differences between male and female contact sports are, are really important and they do have implications on, on how we prepare our females for collision demands and injury prevention and things like that. So perhaps we should be taking slightly different approaches to how we target um, the kind of preparation of our women for these collision demands. From an Australian football perspective, we are seeing some similar things that there's 
yeah, some barriers for women because they're taking up the game later in terms of getting into that tackling and contact. And um, yeah, what are what are some of the barriers that the athletes or the coaches might be experiencing and trying to play that kind of catch up with respect to tackling? Yeah, yeah, as you say, um, it is it is playing catch up and without giving away too much of my um, qualitative data that I'm collecting so far, which is in the write-up phase, um, we are definitely seeing social and physical barriers to, to contact training. And um, a lot of it circulates around the organisation of um, these women's rugby in particular. And, um, you know, the, the access to things like strength conditioning, um, gyms, um, even pitch availability, really tiny, trivial things that you think should, are <laughs> uh, you take for granted. Um, you know, a lot of women actually struggle to have access to these sort of things. A lot of teams don't have um, pitch side physios, um, often having volunteers or parents coming to, to hold the first aid bag and things like that. So um, in terms of the safety and the performance, we are definitely playing catch up in the women's game and that's at that's at multiple levels um and that's from my own experiences but it is we are seeing it echoed in in the interviews as well that we're conducting with players so um it's actually interesting that it mirrors some of the work that uh, joanne parsons group had on on um gender and acl injury i, I know you had joanne and Stephanie on the podcast before, um, which was a really, really good episode. So I suppose um, Joanne's work suggests that gender likely influences many of the risk factors for ACL injury in, in female athletes. So I'm hoping our interview data will hopefully expand <laughs> on some of these findings and, and we can kind of um, work off that. And then I'm interested in what you think the role of sports medicine practitioners having this in terms of contributing to some of those um, preparing for all those collisions um, is that just the coach's domain or? yeah that's that's a good point I think practitioners have a really unique position that they um, they're kind of central to the whole um, athlete well-being within a team and, and I know um, sports practitioners have enough work to be doing when looking after teams but given the high frequency of tackle events per game and, and how it carries the highest risk of injury and, and the impacts of these injuries on team performance, it's really in their best interests to coaches, practitioners, everybody to um, get greater time investment on and, and prepare women better. Um, I think if practitioners can help um, facilitate coaches and, and other um, key stakeholders to prepare women better to tackle safely, effectively it will mitigate tackle injuries and benefit team performance in the long run just by even having more players available for selection so um for example practitioners may evaluate the warm-ups or the strength and conditioning programs that are currently being used and you know for example if, if women lack long-term exposure to tackling then perhaps their physical preparedness for the match demands could be optimized through programming that incorporates neck strengthening or body awareness or contact conditioning all of which don't really require too much equipment or too much knowledge you know you're, you're just kind of planting the seed and, and hopefully the you know, the physical trainers or the, the the technical coaches can kind of go on from there um, I know I've personally benefited from things like contact conditioning 
to build my capacity for tackling under fatigue. And I know of players that have really enjoyed MMA like uh, training for for bodily awareness and adjuncts such as tackling mats. Um, tackling mats um, have been helpful for those with kind of low confidence or that that fear of injury that, that you alluded to. Um, and even tackle mats for modified contact training because of injuries. So it's it's definitely um, there's definitely scope for practitioners to have a say and and kind of plant the seed and implement some of these things into into players' preparedness. That's great. Some really good practical tips there. Okay, so we've talked about some of the physical demand, so the actual, the running um, and also the the collision. So let's move on to some of the tactical demand. So um, those were things like, you know, how to, how did the players score in, in the game? What were some of the key findings in that tactical space and, and what do they mean? Yeah, so I suppose some of the, some of the tactical findings were things like, um, where teams scored tries from um was it in the middle of the pitch or was it uh, you know at the edges did they work it in from the wing um the number of passes that were needed to kind of um score tries and it was noted that um women used a lot of kind of pick and goes and and um were less likely to use things like attacking kicks compared to their male counterparts so so all of these sort of things factor into how um coaches would prepare for demands even vice versa how teams might defend against things like pick and goes or or defending wider rucks as opposed to central rucks things like that and teams can kind of base their defensive um tactics or attacking tactics off some of these findings um which which could be useful and did you find any of it surprising and does it link in with any of the stuff we're talking about collisions i think the women were going a little bit wider um than the men, so not trying to break through the packs as much. Was that my correct interpretation? Yes, yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, it was maybe um, less a game of attrition for for the female teams compared to the to the guys, but um, the the evasion and um, things like the sevens games, for example, we talked about like um, perturbations and, and evasive footwork and things like that were particularly important. Um, skills for for female teams to to hone for success. So, um, yeah, but that's not to say that um, perhaps developing some of the less used tactics, such as attacking kicks and things like that, could be useful. So it just kind of broadens people's um, perspectives on on kind of what could be used and what maybe is underutilized in in the women's game. Yeah, great. And we see, I guess, yeah, similar in the Australian football, the the men might use the whole pitch. It's probably the opposite, actually. They probably, because they can kick longer um, and can use the whole pitch, whereas um, the women's game is a little bit more potentially contested and going to those numbers. So, But getting the ball off the ground and being able to get out of that congestion and evade is a really important um, skill so that, like, speed and power is what kind of stands out as well so I think you're exactly right like developing those things is going to make the game better and you know making them okay so we've talked about physical we've talked about tactical I think you mentioned at the start there was uh, a little bit on technical what were those again and yeah is there anything messages for practitioners in the technical demands 
Yeah, so um, there was actually quite a, a small number of studies that, that touched on the technical demands in female populations. So obviously another area for, for more research, but um, there, were, there were kind of some key findings in, in the selection and, and execution of technical skills like handball passing, um, punt kicking and, and um, tackle completion in the women's game and things like uh, rock technical actions in, in rugby sevens. So um, a lot of the things were quite similar between the sexes, but there were, were some differences in areas like scrummaging um, in terms of the postures and, and forces generated. And in terms of punt kicking, they used IMU devices to kind of measure um, the distances and, and the techniques used. So, um, yeah, really, it's it's good information and food for thought for for um, researchers interested in those technical demands and, and the skill acquisition in these areas because there's plenty of room for uh, plenty of scope for more research. Research. Yeah, that's right. I remember the women were in a they weren't as low in their posture. Um, so if we think about like a scrum, like their shoulders were up higher, um, whereas the men where their shoulders were up down closer to like the, their level of their their hips. Did yes. you find that surprising? And yeah, what does that does that mean? Is that a bad thing or is that just yeah? Yeah, yeah, I suppose I wasn't surprised by it because um women are kind of dropped into rugby with, you know, you might have a couple of training sessions before your first game and you're you're um Oh yeah, you, you you play front row, so they're kind of just thrown into it, and they just find whatever way works for their body. Um, and I'm not saying that female bodies are different from male bodies, but um, given the lack of kind of training age, maybe that that is just a posture that they find comfortable. Um, do you think I it's know, to do with that like neck and shoulder girdle strength, like getting into that lower position, and then obviously the force is all coming, yeah, in a different direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That 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 could definitely play a role. And and um, I know kind of access to scrum machines and things like that to really work on that technique and, and really um, foster those those lower postures. It, they, they maybe just haven't had it as much of a chance. Um, I know there 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 maybe is research um, out there, not in rugby populations, but in kind of other human subjects where um, the center of gravity. Um, is different between male and female so maybe maybe it is something to do with where their center of gravity is and, and where they can find the kind of sweet spot um, mm. for those scrummaging positions again that's, that's something that maybe needs a greater greater look at because I don't know then does that have an implication on on injury risk or on performance because maybe maybe we do want them getting down into that lower posture that, that mm. the men seem to inhabit but um, you know, who's to say that's any more effective than than what they're doing currently? Yeah, we don't know. We're all um, we're just guessing, aren't we? Could be something <laughs> to do with like having breasts and yeah, the the center of gravity or yeah, where the point of contact is. Yeah, um, lots to do. All right, um, let's move on to the last area, you know, um, which was the preparation strategies. You mentioned that sports science technologies aren't as common in women's teams. I think we probably all know that it's an emerging space. Um, but from what we do know, and probably maybe drawn your experience as an athlete, 
what types of monitoring or testing um, is most useful if, if a team, a women's team, had to prioritise a few things, um, what what would it be? Yeah, so so from our scoping review, there was only one paper that talked about the preparatory strategies in women's rugby codes. Um, and they find real kind of diversity in the, the preparatory strategies used across these sports and even within the sports. So um, which kind of indicates there's no real consensus on what, what is best practice in, in female populations. But some techniques used were um, menstrual cycle monitoring. Um, they had kind of sports technology usage in the form of maybe Nord boards, um, CMJs, um, GPS technology for collisions and locomotor demands. Um, they were definitely the most cited areas. But funny enough, the, the, the usage of these sports technology was comparably lower to their male counterparts. So I think only, only there was only 54% usage of GPS in these elite rugby codes compared to the 100% usage that is seen in, in the men's sports. So we don't really know why um, teams aren't using them and, and perhaps it is to do with kind of the, the social and physical barriers to the organisation of women's uh, rugby, but um, certainly understanding these things and addressing these barriers will definitely help prepare these women a little bit better because we, we, we already know the well-established benefits of using GPS and sports technology for kind of managing player loads and, and um, turn to play and the, the performance outcomes that we need. And you alluded before that you're, yeah, you've had your load managers and athlete. Is that through like, yeah, self-reporting or yeah, what kind of things have you kind of felt most useful as an athlete? Yeah, self-report, we would do kind of daily monitoring of our sleep quality, um, our feeling mood, um, menstrual cycle monitoring, um, that sort of stuff. And then we would do maybe like weekly or, or monthly um, CMJ testing and, and outcomes like that, and as well as maybe weight and um, knee to wall and seated reach and things like that, just to kind of see, you know, are we are we staying consistent or are we all over the place and do we need to kind of wind down a little bit on your on your training load? And I know certainly for for myself as an amateur athlete, like we do have good weeks and bad weeks, and when the workload and the PhD demands are high and um, unfortunately that sport suffers and my you know my sleep and everything else suffers too so um coaches are really good at factoring that into training and, and making sure that we aren't overtraining and and um, overloading ourselves um on and off the pitch too mm. it's really interesting i think it's you know even applicable for amateur athletes out there that are going from work to to playing sport and it's a really important part of life for a lot of people. And do you have any tips for people being able to, yeah, switch off from that work and go and, you know, focus in on training and get the most out of yourself? That is a really good question. And I am a devil for leaving everything to last minute. I could literally kind of switch off from work five minutes before heading out to a training pitch I don't know how I do this but I'm quite good at compartmentalizing my 
my problems and my my uh, my stuff. So um, I think you have to be brutally honest with yourself. And I think it comes with the territory as researchers are really like critical people and critical thinkers anyway. So when it comes to reflecting on what we're like and what we're doing, um, you know, we 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 are brutally honest. And and if I feel oh. I'm going, I'm going into this gym session and I've just had a full session um, on a podcast with Brooke Patterson and I'm feeling wrecked and I'm not going to get much out of this gym session. My coaches will <laughs> will take that on board. And um, I mean, I, I've told them that I'm not going to be at my very best to do my three rep max in today's gym session. And that's fine. We can, we can push it to next week. Um, so that's just the way you have you have to look at it in that way because you you'll just run yourself into the ground unfortunately and and you're no good to anybody if you're injured then so um, it comes through learning the hard way <laughs> through silly injuries that you've picked up by pushing yourself to do things that your your body really wasn't um, able before in that moment so um, I don't know I don't know what your advice would be Brooke but that's mine. No, that's really good advice and, yeah, I've certainly learnt the hard way as well. Um, but I think it's a really yeah, um, important point for women's sport and where it's at at, at the moment and, and women may not have been in that environment and once they get in that environment, it's amazing and, you know, everyone wants to make the most opportunity of it and, yeah, they'll do anything to kind of get better and sometimes that is to their own detriment. So I think that's a really important message to practitioners working with these women about setting those expectations as well and the coaches being open and approachable to yeah some of those modifications and trying to understand the athlete of when yeah they really do need to be modified and know like when to to push them as well yeah yeah yeah. um all right let's wrap it all up so kind of bring together all those different demands and yeah what does it mean for practitioners what would be your three um, points for practitioners to take away. Practitioners should should incorporate these these um, physical, technical, tactical, and preparatory strategies um, into and inform their current practice. So, say a rugby player has a longer term lower limb injury or something, practitioners should be cognizant that that player will need to be able to cover five kilometers on average and need the capacity for repeated sprints and collisions and accelerations and decelerations so all of these things should be incorporated into a return to play um, as well as a consideration for their position specific roles and tasks um, like scrummaging if that's what they need or tackling um, and practitioners should kind of have an open line of communication with coaches and SNCs to cater for, for all of these demands and, and tailor their preparation um, accordingly so um, perhaps contextual considerations should be applied to maybe how we warm up um, and prepare our, our players. So if, if say, our back three um, are needed to achieve the, the top max velocity in, in training over long um, distances, maybe our warm-ups or midweek speed sessions should be tailored to reflect the needs of those those back three players that that need those sprint um, exposures during the week. So essentially it's, it's about um, training and preparing and managing 
our female athletes smarter um, and, and using the, this data to, to help inform that. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. It's been great to chat. Um, we'll pop the paper and any resources you mentioned in the show notes. And if listeners want to get in contact with you, are you on Twitter? How can they contact you? Yeah, certainly. Um, listeners can contact me on uh, Twitter at, at CatherineDN2. Um, be happy to chat about the paper, chat about all things rugby and women's sport.